Please pronounce your name correctly for me. I'm Danny Stern. And you run a podcast called? The Art Dealer Show. And so you have been an art dealer in, and I believe you're in San Francisco, correct? Yeah, I'm based in Los Angeles, but the company that I own with my partner, we're based in, uh, sorry, our company is based in Los Angeles, whereas I make my home in San Francisco. Okay. And you have been an art dealer yourself for many years. Many. Yeah. I've worked pretty much every position you can imagine in the industry, starting on the floor and brokering. And uh, of course, now the agency I own, we represent and publish and distribute artists. Okay. So let's start from the beginning. Let's say, so how did you even get into the arts? Were your parents into the arts? Did Was it a teacher, a friend? Like what, what even brought you into this uh, industry itself? Well, I, I definitely grew up around the arts a lot. Uh, my parents both are artists. Uh, my father specializing in pen and ink, also composes on the piano. Uh, my mother was a calligrapher of note as well. So your professional career in the arts started working in what part of the industry? So where did you start off? I started off, well, actually, uh, I went to a formal art school. I went to Art Center College of Design okay. and then went in through the commercial door. I was in advertising for a number of years, specializing in food advertising, specifically as a photographer. Ran a little uh, photo studio that also semi-functioned as a uh, bit of a design firm as well for the same specialty. And then the market dropped out <laughs> roundabout uh, 1991 in California. Uh, and we all went from uh, being very active in that industry from, you know, I was in a community where we had a lot of studios all in one area. And I remember one afternoon, I realized a lot of us are sitting out here drinking a lot earlier than we used to be in front of our studios. And I figured that was my cue to try something a little bit different, especially uh, because I wanted to move out of Los Angeles. So that was the opportunity as well. And I came up here to San Francisco and uh, not too far down the road, uh, actually responded to an ad in a paper for an art gallery. And I figured, hey, you know, if there's one thing I know how to do really well, other than know my art well, uh, as I can talk. And I figured that would translate into something in an art gallery, at least enough to get through whatever these, you know, financial hard times were in the, well, specifically in California. And that turned into a career for about the next 30 years. So where did you work? What would, what, uh, cause I actually went to the San Francisco art Institute and worked uh, around that area for a while as well. I started at the San Francisco art exchange. Mm -hmm. So I come in, you know, there are many different levels to our industry, or maybe levels isn't the perfect word for it. There's many different um, versions. Yeah, even tiers. I don't want to put it in any kind of a status list, but there are different ways that art gets sold, and there are different kinds of art galleries. And the kind of art gallery that I started with and have really specialized in through my career is street-level art galleries. So the ones where you don't need to make an appointment, you don't need to know someone who knows someone, uh, you don't need to walk into an auction house. You can just be a tourist on vacation in a major city and be attracted by something in a front window of an art gallery right there on, you know, hence the term street level, right there at your eye level, walk in and take an interest and the conversation begins. 
Interesting. Okay, so let's go back a step because you you call your podcast the Art Dealer Podcast, and there's all kinds of little semantic things that go on in the art industry. So give me your definition of art dealer versus indifference like art gallery or art. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other terms that people use around that kind of stuff. But like, what's mm-hmm. your definition of like dealer versus gallerist or even auction house or reseller or <laughs> um, well, f- actually, uh, the show is called the Art Dealer Show. Uh, first Sorry, first, did I did I get it wrong? You called the Art Dealer Podcast, and I just Sorry. someone Sorry. someone might try to look it up. Uh, <laughs> okay, Art Dealer, making a new show. listener or two. Uh, yeah, I gave it a lot of thought actually in what I was going to call the show, and I wanted it to be the most uh, encompassing of all the titles that I can give it. I felt that, or or do feel that, the title of Art Dealer is really the umbrella that a lot of other positions fall into. So, you know, in some art galleries, they call them art consultants instead of art dealers. Uh, To some people, art dealer means an independent. Of course, we have art directors uh, or gallery directors. And, you know, there's art advisors now that have entered into the mix. Yes, I've talked with some of them. Yeah, which is its own kind of strange specialty that I'm still getting my head around in some respects. Uh, but yeah, it, it almost actually, that just feels like the, I'm going to go into the business of hanging on really tight to wealthy people and be their advisor <laughs> instead of, you know, taking it from the position that I represent anything specifically. But um, to me, I just wanted to make sure that everybody who was in one way or another in the business of selling art, including artists themselves, had one thing that they could hang on to and feel I'm a part of that. Art dealer just seemed to kind of fit the best. And art okay. seller sounds clunky. Yeah, art seller's bad. No, dealer's better. I agree mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. So, and then you're still working as an art dealer at this point and running this podcast? Well, I consider myself still an art dealer. Yeah, definitely. You know, even though what I do now is more behind the scenes in representing artists and the publishing and the distributing. I'm still actively selling art in many different ways. In one way, I'm selling it because I am uh, selling the idea that my artists uh, would benefit a gallery, two galleries. So instead of the ultimate, you know, the eventual collector being the person I'm talking to, I'm talking to the people who are in the middle and they're the first people that have to be sold. They need to believe that the artists that I represent uh, will have a market. And then the other aspect of it is, uh, I'm kind of the engine room for the process. I'm helping digest the stories that are behind the individual pieces of artwork and distributing that information out to the galleries, uh, talking with them about the types of customers uh, that are engaging it, uh, the reasons why they're attracted to certain artists' works that I represent, obviously. So even though I rarely talk directly to the people who buy the work, although I do from time to time, I'm still doing the same basic thing. I'm still thinking out what is important to this art, what is important to this artist, what makes them valuable. And I'm just handing it over, though, to the next person that needs that information. 
Okay, every single thing you just said, I want you to elaborate on all of it because it (laughs) is exactly what this podcast is all about. Like, how do you select artists? How do you help with their careers? Like, how how does a good artist work uh, in collaboration with a a dealer or a gallerist or a curator to build their careers? How you know publishing? How does an artist get to publishing? Everything that you just elaborate. Just keep talking because like. You are a wealth of the knowledge that I have been looking for. Oh, well, now I'm just doomed to fail you. Uh- <laughs> no, no, this is exactly what I want to hear. Tell me. I mean, the, the the bottom line is, is like, I'm a practicing artist. I'm also a professor and I do all, you know, of course, we all do many, many different things. So the question, the first question always is like, how can an artist connect with, let's call it, the people that will help their career? So whether that's a curator, a collector, a gallery, or a dealer, or whatever it is, like, what is the best approach to even mm-hmm. engage with these people? Okay, well, let's back up a little bit even further, if I can. And and, and forgive me, I, I might get really academic with you. and uh, Be and, as and academic save, as you want. Go to and, it. And save me if, if I become pedantic along the way, okay? <laughs> I, I have this uh, model that I use for everything in business, but particularly ours, uh, which is the model is based on how the river boats work on the Mississippi River. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. The Mississippi River is this really active riverway. It's also a giant highway of commerce. And because it's so active, every single mile along the way, can change its nature on a daily basis. And because of that, no single captain can take you from the very top of the river to the bottom of the river. It's just too much information. It's too complicated for them to get their heads around. So the way it works, if you start way up on the north and you're working your way well the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, is along the way, there are other captains that are docks that are waiting for your boat. And as the boats come along, and I'm not talking about paddle boats when people think of river boats, I'm talking about, you know, big freighters. When those ships, I should say, come along, another captain gets on and who knows the next 10, 20 miles ahead of you. And then when they're done with their portion, they get off and it goes on and on and on that way. The art business is also very much like this. You need different captains at different parts of your career and even at different points of the daily process. Does it need to be handed off to different people? In the same way that my artists need both me and art galleries, their directors, their owners, the dealers working on the floor, all to be functioning, we all specialize in a different stage in the process of this. That also goes for the artist's career. You know, I specialize along with my partner in mid-career artists. So we don't take anybody that we find who no one knows anything about, you know, previous to us showing up uh, and build them up and uh, expand a career that didn't exist before. We take artists who are already doing a good job of, let's say, making themselves, you know, $100,000 a year and growing them into million-dollar-a-year businesses. And that isn't everybody. You know, most artists are going to cut off at that earlier stage where we're finding them. And that's the lucky ones, you know. This is kind of a world of rock stars, you know, just like in music. There's a lot of people who can make a living playing in a local pub, you know, or kind of moving around that way, or at least a supplemental living. And they're even lucky to have that. There's only a couple people who are really going to be rock stars at the end of the day. 
And that's a little bit more in the department of what my company does. We deal with artists that distribute into dozens of galleries throughout multiple countries around the world. I feel like I'm going off the rails just a little bit though here. Yeah, I'm No, I'm utterly fascinated. Please continue, go, this is great. Okay, so backing up a little bit for the artist who's listening to this and trying to figure out, you know, what's their way into this business, you really gotta only think or should only think in short distances. Stop thinking about becoming the equivalent of being a rock star. Whether you make it or not is really not dependent upon your talents or anything else. A lot of it's luck. A lot of it is the style of which you work in, uh, being the style of the moment, you know, and fitting with fashion of the moment. Uh, some of it is just subject matter. Uh, some of it is, do you have a good story to tell? And you can't just fabricate that. But regardless of any of that, uh, that stuff, begin with creating your own small market. And that might not be an art gallery. Usually it isn't. The fairs, creating your own, you know, collectors, even within your own small community, you have to build from somewhere. Just about every artist that I've worked with that's not previously a celebrity in their own right, I don't know if you know this, but about uh, half the artists I represent are kind of stars outside of the art world as well. They're rock stars or famous oh, writers. Oh, seriously, Dro drop some names. I want to hear yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't represent them currently. We're probably most known, though, for uh, handling Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones in our wow. background. Uh, currently, we handle Bernie Taupin, you know, the famous uh, writing partner with Elton John. Mm -hmm. uh, we've worked with uh, John Lennon in our history. Uh, right now, we just started rolling out our newest client, Sylvester Stallone, which we're really? incredibly excited about yeah yeah it's wait, really... wait what does he paint i'm assuming painter for some reason is he a painter he is he's a painter and this is a perfect example you know what i'm about to tell you really won't translate into much of anybody else's story it's just specialized to what i do but still a fascinating story go ahead okay <laughs> um but he he ticks a lot of the boxes and what for what we look for and being a celebrity is actually not on the top of the list it's how compelling is the story and how legitimate is the art behind the story. And in the case of Stallone, and this is not widely known yet, art has always been a part of his process as both a, as a writer, director, and actor. And it goes back as early as his college years. He studied equally fine art along with studying acting when he was in college. And actually for a period of time, it seemed that he thought he was going to be an artist first. And he would use this to hash out his characters. So the character of Rocky, which he wrote and directed and then eventually and acted as, that initially was a painting three years previous to writing the screenplay. And that painting informed him on the character. And he has done this ever since with everything he's done in his film work. I want to see those paintings. Well, you can go take a look at... Uh, yeah, you're going to have them all? <laughs> well, you know, we have a separate website for him, StalloneArt.com. Okay, I, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, to give you just a counterside to it, that not everybody's a celebrity, I also represent an artist by the name of Tom Everhart, who is a over-the-top, formally educated fine artist, who eventually became the artist that Charles Schultz handed over all his intellectual properties to. 
Okay. Wow. As, well, not as an ownership, by the way, just to clarify, but to continue on the storytelling of his characters. And okay, so that that's peanuts, right? Peanuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Great. I'm like I'm just making sure I got the right Charles Schultz. <laughs> okay fabulous now okay you've mentioned a few times you've said things about the story of the story behind and sort of the the reason of like i want to know more about that because i live in europe right now and in europe it's very big the idea of sort of artist statements and having strong concepts behind your works and intentions and and all this kind of stuff and of course there's always needs to write grants and there's needs to to apply for residencies and all these kinds of reasons to create these really eloquent artist statements give me some examples of like some good ideas to include in artist statements and some bad ideas of what to stay away from for in your artist statements well artist statements are doing a couple different things for an artist's career you know, especially let's just presume that the ultimate goal is to make a living off of your art and hopefully a successful living. Uh, and, and I'll yes, shy as away we all from, have, yes. Right, and it just, just to be clear that I'm not talking about the actual legitimacy of an artist statement, nor would I feel qualified even, you know, get into that. Uh, those. Uh, I'm sure you've you. read enough artist statements to have a good position on artist oh, statements. Oh, my fill and then some. The two audiences that you were talking to, the two different jobs you're trying to achieve, is firstly the one that's going to give you credibility in the fine art world, right? That is a different set of ears than the people who are eventually going to buy the work or at least buy enough of it to give you a career to live off of. Yet they, they have to function together. You know, these you, you don't, don't get the opportunity to write two different statements to two different audiences. But you are writing at perhaps two different times in your career, too. So the first stage is, are you writing things that will give you legitimacy? In that case, you really should be ignoring what sells. And you should be, you know, hitting things that are honest. Uh, you should always be acknowledging what came before you. The one thing I can't stand in an artist's statement is the absolute ignoring of the people that obviously influenced them and how they did. I think that is not only uh, inappropriate and it's, it's dangerous because it's going to turn on the cynical ears of the readers in the academic community, uh, but it's gonna, it makes it easy to just write you off. You know, Because honestly, and I've said this directly to artists a number of times before, if you're not acknowledging the people who your work is actually based on, I have to come to three conclusions, one of which is, or, you know, or any combination of, you're either too ignorant about what you're doing to be taken seriously because you don't know who came before you, or you're too blind to them, or you're too immature, actually it's a lot more than three, <laughs> that you're comfortable about giving them credit. And most importantly, I can't anticipate that you're ever going to advance the conversation of art beyond the people who came before you that you're basing your work on, and we're all basing our work on people who came before us. So being that you're not acknowledging them in one way or the other, my expectation that you're going to advance this conversation and heighten it in any way has been diminished greatly. And then I have to assume if I'm attracted to your artwork, it's a lot of luck. 
that you just happened into something that worked out that feels good. It feels like art rather than really is art. And ultimately, maybe it's just craft or something like that. So those are the things I think you have to worry about in the first stages to be accepted in the formal community. The next is along the way of doing this, then be thinking about narrative. How you might not be writing this as a story to a, uh, a person in a museum or in a university at first, but eventually it has to go down the line, going down that river, if you will, to the next captain. And they have to figure out a way to take these things that you have said that are behind your work and the reasons in why you, which you've done it that will then translate into story form. Because to the collector, one, you can't count on them to really understand all the sources and the background of your work and the reasons why you do it. That requires its own education. It doesn't make them ignorant. It just means they haven't gone through the process that we have. It's also the thing they depend on art dealers for. They, need, they look to art dealers, the ones who are really doing a job, who are doing more than just price competing with the next person on the market or making an argument that this is the thing that's going to be hot or this thing has play in auctions right now, that kind of thing. But the one who really explains why this had any value in the first place is the one that can make that translation in between those two things. But that has to start early too. So what is your story to why those things have influenced you? not just because they're important in them themselves or they have a place in the world and you value that place in the world, that doesn't say anything about you. So you also need to give some legitimacy to why you're attracted to it and why you have a voice to offer also in that. How about that for a diatribe? Oh, it's fabulous. It's absolutely, I'm just sitting here just thinking through my artist statements that I've written throughout my career and how horrible they are in in just like with the enlightened in perspective that you've now given me i'm like oh my gosh my artist statements no wonder i didn't get those residencies and those grants because they were just crap <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure they weren't all that bad oh no they were bad like i mean <laughs> it's one of those i it's one of those horrible ironies like like you were saying like that you can go into a, be an art dealer and you can talk and you can sell your stuff I can sell your artwork like nobody's business. Like I can sell mm -hmm. the hell out of your art, but I cannot sell my artwork. Like, so I find it very difficult as the producer of the work to be able to uh, distance myself enough to be objective about the intention of the work and so be able to eloquently write a, a strong artist statement. Um, I've been hearing like here in Europe, it's very common that uh, you might hire an independent curator or something like this to help write your artist statement. And so that's something I'm looking into because I'm such a bad writer when it comes to this stuff. It's It's not a bad idea, you know, because... Also, writing is its own skill, too. Uh, but be careful in that. Make sure that they're not just formulating the best story they could figure out based upon the information they're giving you. That still might not be your story. And one down-the-road pitfall you can get into is you can't deliver on the story that's being written about you. Yeah, it's like the they they've written a, ca a check that you can't cash kind of thing, like that they've over uh, sold you, and maybe your work's not quite as good as what they might be pitching. Yeah, absolutely. Let me see if I can give a, an example of this without ratting out my own artists. 
Yeah, I was going to say, don't, uh, don't say names in negative ways. <laughs> well, you know, one is particularly in mind. Uh, within my category, I also represent some very famous artists for working in sports, specifically as subject matter. And the audience for that are not people who would first define themselves as being art collectors. They would define themselves as being fans of the sports subject matter who want to bring it into their lives at a higher level. You know, they're not going to tack a poster onto their wall of their favorite, you know, football player. They're going to, you know, find, uh, well, they're going to find an artist like the one I represent to translate that into something that's a little bit deeper and more meaningful. But the danger you get into is a lot of the art dealers who sell the work, represent it. They might, uh, by not looking into his background and not really reading up on what are his motives, assume that he's just a huge sports fan. And that's what this is coming from. And it's not the case. He enjoys sports. But the things that inspire him have a lot more to do with the fact that he finds them just to be a great subject matter in the same way that, uh, you know, you might see ballerinas as a subject matter for certain artists because they're just a wonderful, you know, um, demonstration of the human form. And they also represent softer issues uh, like dedication and, and grit uh, and commitment and things that go behind the actual game that they play. And he's not invested at all in the statistics of the game or the side stories of the game. He's just really focused on the emotional qualities. Now, if you've been selling a collector and the idea that he's a big sports fan just like you and, you know, every Sunday he's got to watch the game and he shows up at the gallery and he starts talking about, you know, that person who you just bought a painting of and who really, really love painting him because the way his forearm twitches when he's focusing in the near distance is a beautiful thing of art. And then when it moves to side to side was a grace that he just needed to capture because he's never seen the human body move with such, that person is not going to be happy and he's probably going to stop collecting because the narrative just got cut off. It's interesting. So, so what you're saying is like to a certain extent when it comes to collectors you need to understand the narrative that the collectors desire almost more than necessarily what you want to express in certain cases i think you need to find the bridge you got to find the place in between everybody comes in with their own set of understanding of the world around them and the things they like and don't like and what what they believe to be true and yes, to make a piece of artwork sell to that person, you're going to have to meet them where they live. But you can do that one of two ways. You can tell them that all the things they value, that's in this painting. And isn't that great? Or you could understand both the person walking in your front door and also understand the artist and the reasons in which they make a painting. And you can find where those two things connect in the world. And not only bring legitimacy to the conversation that way and, and be able to sleep at night. But also you're probably more likely to invigorate that collector ultimately because they're going to grow in that experience and they're going to give themselves credit for it. They're going to say, it is great that I knew these things that got me this far, which allowed me to learn these other things and be happy about them and excited with this new piece of artwork that I'm bringing into my life. 
It's interesting because like it's been decades since I've worked in the sales aspect of it. I used to work in art galleries in San Francisco and other places, but I, I haven't really been on the sales aspect of it. So like, it seems like the the MO, the modus operandi, or the the reason why, or whatever that collectors are collecting has has shifted. Uh, like it used to be, there there was a time when it was just prestige work, so it was just the the big names and all this kind of stuff. But now it seems to be leaning more towards the idea of like the stories behind the narrative of the emotive qualities to them. Like this seems to be a a trend that's been going on for maybe ten or fifteen years now. Is that something you've been seeing? Yeah, I have been. And I think it's coming from a few different places. It's not just one thing that's causing that to happen. Please um, tell me all of your knowledge. Go. <laughs> well, when I started in the business, and, and I'm, forgive me just by looking at you, I think we're in similar ages. I'm 46. Uh, all right, I'm a little bit older than you, not by huge leaps and bounds. I'm 52. Okay. Uh you look but, much younger than 50. I would have said you were younger than me. Well, I had the makeup person come in earlier. The, uh, <laughs> when my first exposure to this, you know, to what a gallery is in art collecting, probably would have been as a kid. You know, I'd go on a vacation with my parents, and they loved to go into art galleries. And even though they really didn't have the money to collect, uh, I could certainly hear the presentation that was taking place, you know, from the dealers working in the galleries and saw the other people around them. And also know this, obviously, from people I've worked with my, in my career that came before me. And that is, there was a bit of a uh, conveyor belt in society going on. Uh, and what that conveyor belt was, is points in which you had achieved something. So, and this is a very post-World War II baby boomer, uh, you know, growing of the economy kind of culture that, you know, you, you got a college education that was a marker, right? You got a good job. That was a marker. You got married, you bought a house, you got a bigger house, you got a car, you got a better car, you got, you had kids, you sent your kids to college and somewhere along that line, along with many things that you use as markers to say that I'm doing the things I'm supposed to, that I'm developing as a sophisticated, accomplished individual, I got art. You know, I put a piece of artwork into my life. It was a and sign of prestige, yes. Exactly. Now, that's a little bit different than generations before, where, you know, kind of that king and queen class, which is, I'm buying artwork to represent my opulence, you know. This is related to it, but it's not the same thing. It's the newly invented middle-class version of it that drove a lot of the art industry's machine. You know, these are the things that made people like Andy Warhol possible, along with the higher end of the art business. And that came to an end. And it's been falling apart for a very long time. We get educated or we don't get educated, as in we go to college and don't go to college. Some of us buy houses, some of us rent the rest of our life. Some of us has kids, some of us don't. We have those kids at different ages. We show our wealth in very different ways than we used to show wealth before. So the plug and play aspect of this has really disappeared. And with that has come a culture of individualism too. And we're seeing that and all the different, you know, all around the world, not just here in the United States. Uh, I picked up on it starting in Japan a while ago as well, and it's been happening in Europe certainly too. And we're now marking ourselves and our success, not as much in the I have the wealth to do these things or I have the sophistication to know 
you know, what this blue chip artist name is that I've collected. But now we're identifying our importance by uh, representing ourselves in the, this thing reflects who I am. And the fact that I know who I am and I have the courage to put it out into the world with the things that I buy that reflect it, uh, that also speaks to my importance. When do you feel like that transition started? Like in the 90s, 2000s? No, I think it goes back a little bit earlier than that. Um, yeah. Because I, 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 I would say 80s is still a bit prestige kind of, you know, put up pompous piece of artwork in your home to show it off to your friends very stepfordy yv kind of thing keeping up with the joneses and all that but i feel like sort of maybe the 90s is or maybe late 80s early 90s was when that sort of started to wear off it, it's true but you started seeing it in a popular culture way in the 1980s uh you know not that the art had necessarily any long-term value not that that's important but in the United States, when we start, started seeing artists like Nagel work their way into people's homes, that was a perfect reflection of the 1980s. And so it might not be very individual. It was at least speaking into about the time in which people were living. You're a wealth of all the knowledge I want in life. Please just continue. <laughs> just talk. No, I'm just one of those riverboat guys. I just know my little 20 miles of river. <laughs> yes, but you oh. happen to know the 20 miles that I don't know. So mm -hmm. like, I want to know your 20 miles. You know, this is not to say that it's all gone. It's, it's not to say that you could take a no-name artist, uh, and I don't mean that to any artist in the pejorative, but just I take offense who... to that, but that's fine. <laughs> Well, for you, yeah, sure, but <laughs> teasing. Well, but along that, like, so, like, how can an artist these days find some form of success? I mean, it's become, I feel like, on the one hand, it's become very local and regional. So, like, artists are becoming more popular in their own communities or in a specific region. But on the other hand, there's the global community. So there's the Instagram stars and all these kinds of things and the big art fairs and big international art fairs. So like, how can somebody, I mean, what's the, what's a good way? Maybe it's not the good way, but a good way to try to be somewhat successful in this days of local and global simultaneously. Well, two things to that to start with. One you have to make a choice in the beginning, which is, is it important that you become a uh, a commercial success or a career success, at least I should say. Uh, many artists don't and are fine with that. You know, your, your reasons for doing art might not be interdependent upon uh, making a career out of it. And with that, an understanding that when you say, I'm going to make a career out of it, like everybody's career, you're going to make choices to compromise you. Maybe not to great extents, maybe not a huge insult to, you, to your being, but there will, be, there will be flexes in what you do. It, you know, I, I have an artist right now that we're dealing with the fact that he would like to see a little bit more income come out of what he does. And we found that if he hits a specific sweet spot, with making pieces on paper that are 60 by 40 inches, and we price it in a very specific way. And this isn't anything to do with the subject matter, but I'm already affecting his medium and his scale and a lot of important things here. This will make him more income. 
And he has to make a choice of, is he going to interrupt the flow of his work, his ongoing thesis, you know, uh, to accommodate a market that's going to give him more financial comfort? Or is he going to take the risk by denying what is a fact in front of him? And that's a choice he has to make. But that goes back to the first choice that he made in the very beginning. That I was he gonna was say, wait, going what, to say, wait, what choice did he make? He made a choice that he wasn't going to work as a carpenter during the day. I'm making that part up, but a something and be a painter at night and maybe have a storeroom filled with nothing but his paintings that never stole. But yet he remained true to his work and his thesis and his ongoing development remained pure. That, I'm that's not sure you answered the question. <laughs> Yeah. Did, but, was he willing to, to make more of the 40 by 60 inch pa works on paper, though? Like everything, it's a compromise. It comes with pain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's doing not as much as I would advise, and, uh, but he's doing some amount. So we're, we're meeting somewhere in the middle, and that's fine. I am also a little bit different of an artist agent than perhaps many out there. Uh, I have a firm, along with my business partner, uh, we have a firm feeling about never forcing artists into doing anything. We will not pressure. But don't artists, some artists at least, need some pressure? It depends on the kind and not all of it's constructive, right? It's true. Because, I mean, I'm thinking like, I know a number of artists that basically they don't work, they're not as productive if they don't have, let's say, a deadline of like an exhibition or, or whatever, or a publication or something. They don't work as productively as they might if they had some deadline, some some pressure to produce. Well, yeah, that's a fine pressure. I, I'm talking about the, you painted ducks last year and the ducks sold really well, so paint more ducks. You know, yes. that kind of... <laughs> yes, all artists That's the kind of pressure I'm talking that. about. Right, right. That's the stuff that I just, I, I won't involve myself with, at, le at least not in the form of pressure. You know, I'll tell them that those are doing very well and I'll tell them why. So it's always an option for them. I'm their agent. So it's my responsibility always to give them feedback and let them know where their opportunities are. Uh, even things that come our way, you know, sometimes we'll get offered deals by uh, certain uh, licensing deals or certain kinds of galleries that want to handle their work. And it's my obligation as an agent to let them know that that opportunity came, even though I don't believe in it. And I'll tell them why I don't believe in it, but it's, it's their career. It's their choices to be made. But anyway, going back just a little bit where I said, you know, the beginning is you have to make those choices. Yes. The next step of this is understand that the whole world isn't your audience, not even a small part of it. A very, very, very small part of it is your audience. And that's with just about everything. And look, you're only going to be able to make so many paintings or sculptures or whatever it is that you do anyway. There's a limitation to how much of any market you could actually serve. So this is scaled down. Don't worry about what the bigger market wants or where trends seem to be going. You can't really fake it easily anyway. I mean, if you find some aspect of what you do that is answering a demand or interest that's out there and you feel comfortable focusing just on that, that's great. But look for it in small places. It's great advice. I like it. Okay. I, I'm overwhelmed by just like, I just want to hear everything. Just keep talking about <laughs> things that you do. Like, I don't even know what to ask because like you, I mean, you seem to have the experiences that... Uh, I don't have. So, so like, I'm literally just like anything you want to share, I would love to listen to it. So go ahead. Tell me something. Um, 
uh, okay so well, let's go to like we talked a little bit about how artists you know can try to find representation but like what about the idea of like fostering relationships with uh, uh, just the general nature of relationships so it's whether whether it's dealer to artist or or, or dealer to collector or dealer to institution or anything like this because a lot of the people that I know that listen to the podcast are also working curatorial uh, and and other sort of positions as well not just practicing artists so like how do you build these really strong networks and keep them healthy well it, it's it's not complicated it's just work uh you know yeah, you, but, you're well the, okay the reason why i'm asking is because i'm i'm of the position of like how often should you keep in touch with people how not often because like i'm easily annoyed mm. by too many emails or too many things being sent to me so like i would i am of the opinion that other people are equally as annoyed by getting sort of told about things too often. So it's like, it's like how, how involved, how much do you keep up? Do you like once a year, once a month? Like, do you, do you send out emails to people? Like what, you know, what, how do you continue to keep these relationships and build them over decades? You know, because to me, the, an art career is a, is, is a lifelong thing. So it's like, it's not just, how do you make the connections, but how do you foster them and build them and grow them? Okay, yeah, I do have a lot of things to say about that, though. I'll start with this. Um, the first one is an art career, and I'm stealing this from my partner because <laughs> he's it's his mantra. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a very very fragile one. This is a very small world in which we work in, and. and if you're starting in this or you're new or you're kind of on the outside and, and you see the multitudes of fairs and you go into the fairs and you see the hundreds of galleries being represented and the thousands of quasi whatever uh, types of art dealers roaming around, the universe may seem big. It's really not. The people who really move this thing, they're around for the long haul. Uh, there was a study that was done. I wish I can remember the author's name. He's written some great books on our business. One of them is called um, The Brillo Box and the Model or the Supermodel and the Brillo Box, something like that. It's a, it's a wonderful business analysis of the art gallery industry. And, and, and he did a study, I can't remember if it's that book or another one, where he took a issue that was 10 years old of Art Forum magazine and identified that something like what was it, five out of 100 or something of the galleries that were advertising were still in business 10 years later. But understand those few that remain 10 years later, they were probably there even 10 years before that. Those are the lifers versus the transients that come in and out of our business. So understand that there are people in this and you might not know them when you're talking to them, but they're gonna be around a very long time. The second one is when you're done, you're done. And that's a really dangerous part about our art careers, that our careers have an arc. If you're lucky enough, you get to have an accelerated rise, you know, when you plot it on a graph. And if you're really lucky, you get to keep that plateaued as long as possible, or at least stretch out the tail of it, because things go up and they go down, because we are ultimately in a fashion industry, albeit a slow-moving fashion industry. And because of all those things is why you have to pay a lot of attention to the relationships which you make along the way. And basically, like any other business, be friends with everybody along the way. Now, 
to your point about what are the levels of annoying or non-annoying or too much information or too much communication, um, know that... Too, and, well, another one is too friendly versus not, you know, too professional also. Yeah. Here, you know, it's funny. When I ran galleries, you know, for after working on the floor, there was a long period of time where I directed galleries, some of them of my own. And sometimes, a lot of the time, artists would watch, just walk in your front door. I don't know if you've had that experience yourself. Yep. Uh, and, 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 you know, with portfolio in hand or sometimes not, and kind of buttonhole you and say, you know, I'm an artist and I think my art would look great in your gallery. And their expectation was, you know, you'd be excited for them or hopefully they'd be able to catch you on a good day where you'd look at the work. And the first thing that I would always tell them is you've already failed on test one. And, and they would look puzzled and very, you know, put off by it. And I would say, well, what you failed at is I'm a business and now I know you're not. And I'm not just looking for good artists. If an artist is in my gallery, I'm in business with that artist. If I'm going to, you know, I pay a lot of money for the walls that I have. You know, I can tell you what every square inch, inch of that wall is worth in actual dollars every single month in the rent and the electric bill and the marketing and the art dealers that I pay and the, the curators, the repainting and all of that, it costs me. So if I'm going to make the choice to put your art on my walls, I'm making a literal investment directly into you. And that means I need to you to be in partnership with me to act like another fellow business person. I need to know when I call you up that you're not just having a bad day. I need to know that when I'm telling you I have inventory you know, issues and that the things are not coming from your studio fast enough for me to be able to work with them or in time for shows or to be shot by the photographer, whatever it is, then I'm not going to get caught in a pinch. And the first thing you told me is, I don't understand business because I think I can just walk into somebody's business and say hello. That is the most eloquent explanation I've heard about why not to just walk into a gallery. Most galleries that I talk to generally just say, it's a bad idea. <laughs> well, yeah, and a lot of the time it's because if you're in that moment, it's because you've already kind of irritated them and they want to give you the benefit of the actual lesson along the way. I don't know if my answer when I used to tell people exactly what I just told you was any better received. I think they just mostly took it as a no. A few, I think, got it. Well, I, I think that the, a lot of the problem is, is like because I, I teach also, so I, I've been in academia for almost 20 years, and the the problem I have with it is, is that a lot of academia, they teach artists how to make beautiful things, whatever, mm -hmm. objects, performances, whatever they make, but they don't teach us how to be business people. And then we're thrown out into the real world, and then we run into things like your galleries, where you expect us to know how to be good business people, but nobody's taught us that. And and it's there. There's a bit of a disconnect between academia and the real world, where academia should be teaching artists a little bit more. I mean, I'm not saying a lot, but a little bit more about how to professionally be a business of an artist, not just a producer of beautiful things or, or performances or whatever they do, but, but actually like learn how to present themselves and run themselves as a business and think of their art as a business. And this is, I think a big uh, deficit in the current artists of this generation that we don't know how to be good business people. I think one of the things that our colleges in particular are afraid of is if they open the door about teaching the business aspect of this, 
there's a certain confession that would go along with it that most people will not be able to be in that business. And they're avoiding it entirely by saying, well, let's just focus strictly on making you or giving you the tools to be good at what you do. And what you do with them after that point is really going to be your business. Um, I don't think that's all of them, but I think that is, and I don't even think it's cognizant, but I think it's in there. Um, the, you know, the best thing that I think it was ever said to me when I was in college and I went to my fancy art school was a senior year, last semester class I was in. And the teacher happened to have been an artist rep. So commercial world, but similar to like what I do. And he said, a lot of you are going to think on the date that you get that, you know, degree handed to you, uh, that that was the end of your dues. And what you have to understand is you just went to school. You haven't done any dues at all. Dues start the day after you get that degree not in the school itself. A lot of artists are really confused by that. They also think that just making their art for a long time is their dues. And that too is not just the dues by, by itself. And, you know, my best advice to an artist would really be work with other artists who are successful. Try to be a, a, a studio assistant. It's a great way to learn how the business is being done, not so much the art itself. That's really not what it's about. And you start to understand not just the who's who and the, you know, and the mechanics of it, but you start to pick up on the rhythms of it as well. The business of the arts, um, it, it's, it's my fascination because, I mean, I went to art school. I went to art school on art school on art school. I have three degrees. Mm -hmm. I have my master's, blah, blah, blah. But none of it taught me the business of it, and and I wish that they had taught me some of the business of it. So, like, wh what can artists, you know, what can they do to be more business like without without like I'm doing air quotes here of like selling out, like without becoming too commercial too quickly or too easily. Like, how can they stay true to their vision, but you know, find a way to make, be business-like and, and create a good income and a good reputation and all that. First is going to be some psychological aspects of it. I love um, psychology. Go to <laughs> Or at least in the sense of the psychology behind coming to terms. And I'm not going to repeat myself, but it's going to be on theme here. Let me give you an example. Jackson Pollock. Envision the artwork of Jackson Pollock right now. Okay. Now put this in your head. He only made the paintings you're thinking about for a very, very brief period of time. It's a matter of less than 10 years. I don't know the exact amount of years. It's a small portion of his overall life career. The, the paintings are counted, I think, in the dozens, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, correct me if I'm off on this. I'm not the academic I like to think I am sometimes. I am uh, not but, an art historian. It's fine. But there are other works that he did. He wasn't always the abstract expressionist that you're thinking of. He made other paintings in his career, and he landed upon something that clicked. It worked in a marketplace. And if he continued to live and didn't have that horrible car accident, he would have eventually been faced with, if he wasn't already beforehand by people like Peggy Guggenheim and such along the way, with with the, the challenge of the world wouldn't want him to evolve. That they wanted, they could only handle, keep in their head, him as this one thing. And that was where his success lived. 
He could have decided that he wanted his work to evolve into much more romantic directions. And the market could have rejected him along the way and probably would. Very rarely does market move with the evolution of the artist. So if he wanted to continue to be a financial success, he would have to make the choice that this will be an ongoing thesis. However, which way he can manipulate himself to be happy with just that. And artists usually aren't. But that's a choice you have to make. Because what's going to happen is sooner or later, you're going to have a good year and you're going to make a kind of artwork that along the way, you're going to meet a gallery owner or somebody in the field in some form or another who says that I can sell that that works that resonates the next question is going to be how many do you have of them hopefully the answer isn't this painting and (laughs) because they want to know that there's going to be a supply behind it right and then they're going to get in the business of selling that and your hope is going to be they're going to make let's say your name is rick swanson they're going to make rick swanson fans who are just going to go along with you for the ride but it's not going to happen you're going to want to depart from it and it's going to be hard work. And hopefully you have a, a, a gallery that really believes with you that maybe can make some adjustments and maybe re-educate the public and maybe find new collectors for you. But that's going to be difficult. So know that that is out there because that goes into what is this as a business? You are now a manufacturer of a product. And I hate to put it in such cold terms to such a broad audience and the arts that you have, but this is what the truth is. You know, you are manufacturing a commercial item that gets bought with money and you are now a factory. And by the way, why Andy Warhol probably called his studio the factory. It's very (laughs) apropos. Because he really got this. If you... If you don't think that Andy Warhol was a businessman first, you're, you're missing what was going on. Oh, and no, he, he was knew, fabulous. I loved his business aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to answer to it. And by the way, if you're cringing and listening to this, let this comfort you a little bit. Okay, This is how most artists get through this. You can get a job waiting on tables, and hopefully su- that supports your much more important life as an artist that may or may not have buyers or you can do this you can find the one thing you're able to create as an artist that has an audience and will create you that income and will sustain you and a lot of artists have other works that you know the public doesn't see as much yeah yeah i totally understand that i mean along that line something else that sort of dawned on me while you were just talking is that what are some uh, so in in the contemporary field what are some things that people so whether it be a curator or a, or an artist or any anybody that's in the field right now what are some things that they can be doing to elevate their status let's say so like, what i'm thinking of is like some articles that i've recently read about like the whitney biennial that you that drew directly from a particular residency uh things like this like are there grants or residencies or programs or whatever that that seem to elevate somebody's from a uh you know we didn't want to do like levels or tiers but like sort of like entry you know entry level artist or emerging artist to like a mid-career artist like what are some things in the industry that maybe we should like look towards to try to elevate our our careers i recommend this Go visit a lot of galleries, or now we can do that on the internet. Go visit a lot of galleries, websites, 
and read the uh, bio and CV of the artists that they're representing and just read them one after another after another. And what you will find is it'll start becoming a blur after a while. And the idea that somebody went to such and such school, somebody got such and such grant, somebody's in such and such museum really will start to devaluate after a while of reading this and understand that that's what the collector's perspective is. It, it, it's, a, it's a lot of blur to them. Now, it's not meaningless. The fact that they say you were in a museum, that you were in a collection, that you were in a review, that you got a grant, those are all good things. They're checkboxes that you have achieved something and that you're being acknowledged by the community. But it's also, it's uninteresting at the same time. You know, it's kind of like when you go to a car dealership and, and I don't, I love cars. I really love cars. I cannot tell you how a car works and I can't tell you about any performance specs, right? I know mm -hmm. the bottom end ones. I know this one's faster, you know, <laughs> you know, this, this is more sleek. This is better mileage, whatever it is. But when a car dealer starts telling me about a bunch of technology that went into the new year of this model, and now they run this much more efficient, and this means they can take turns in this way, and then to be more dependable in this kind of handling, and you're getting the feedback because of this sort of complicated computer system that they now have on board. And, and I'm just nodding like an idiot. It doesn't mean entirely nothing to me because I don't understand it, but here's what I get. I get he gets it, and I get that it's important and it's good, and I get that I'm really happy that those good important things are under the hood of the car that I like because it's a great color of orange. Those are all very satisfying pieces of information. But to advance beyond, to really get out of the fray of everybody's multitudes of grants and collections and all those other things that go into their CVs that make them all look fairly similar, be looking for the thing that you can do that none of them, none of the others can do. And it can be quirky or it could just be commercially impressive. For instance, let's say <laughs> I've got an artist. Let me give you a great example. Of it. <laughs> I love your examples. Go ahead. Yeah. I've got an artist who has had an exhibit in the Louvre, which okay, frustrates. That's impressive. Yeah, and it frustrates me, by the way, because I would say half the art dealers I deal with out there don't even have the ability to fully digest what it means to have your art exhibited at the Louvre while you're alive to see it have taken place. Right? That's insane. Like, yeah, that's, it is. Yeah, it's, 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 I call fabulous. it the, it's the drop the mic credential. All right. Oh, absolutely. Do you, do you I, know I would what, call it like a, a unicorn on a rainbow. Kind of right. Thing. I, I always tell art dealers when I'm training them on that artist, I go, you, you don't ever use that one first because there's nothing to say afterwards. Right. You know, if someone's asking you for more after that point, it just means there's nothing you're going to say ever that's going to impress them. But you, do you know what impresses people the most when I go out there and talk about this artist? He painted the dome that goes over the forum shops at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Right. Yeah. And they can connect with it. It's also only one person painted that dome. Lots of people have been in the Louvre in their mind. And it's unique and it's much more memorable because of that. It also was a much easier accomplishment in his career to get that gig than obviously get accepted to have his work to be exhibited there. 
those are the things you're looking for. And also, even within credentials you already have, look for the angle, not the title. You know, why is that unique? Who is up against it? What other famous people have had this before in the, in the past of their career? You know, mm. you got the such and such grant, which, by the way, was one of the early grants that was received by these five other really important artists who you know the name of when you don't know mine. That would be an example mm. of ways of working those things out. Yeah, the the why that that you just mentioned is something that keeps coming up over and over. And like, I do portfolio reviews, and I'm constantly asking people that same question of like, why did you do this? Why did you produce that? And then in turn, why should a gallerist or why should a collector be interested in it? That's a very good point, actually. That's that's excellent. That's exactly the next thing you would add to it. You know, my more cynical street version of that is if. Okay, great. Why is that important to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. It means, what? But that's one of the most difficult things to quantify because I mean, mm -hmm. it's all subjective, both from the artist creating as well as from the gallerist deciding to represent and then sell. And then from a collector saying, yes, that why moved me in some way so much so that I want to put your piece in my collection. Like that is a... a eternally moving target that is completely intangible and incredibly difficult to try and achieve. It, it very much is. And, and have this always in mind too, when you're coming up with those things, which are not easy is understand at some point, this translates down that down the line, you know, that goes from this academic to that academic to, you know, that person on the committee for the grant to that gallery owner, to that art dealer, eventually to a collector who's showing a painting in their living room to Ed next door that's usually half drunk by eight o'clock. And might love your work and now want to buy your work also. Possibly. But, you know, the story has to be, um, has to be transportable. You know, what is it that you can tell that someone at the very top can understand the merits of it, but someone way down the line can enjoy just that it's interesting? Uh, that's, that's good. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, let's wrap this up. I got two final questions that I generally ask most people. So I'm going to, sure. one's simple, one's much more difficult. <laughs> simple, <laughs> simple one is, do you have any advice for, so let's, let's take this off of artists. We've talked a lot about artists. You're an uh -huh. art dealer. So do you have any advice for young art dealers or young art gallerists that want to get into this profession and sort of build their own careers in this profession, either things to do or things to stay away from that you have learned by mistakes. So to, to the person who wants to get in on the selling side, you're saying specifically. Yeah. Like your position, like somebody who theoretically who could be what the next you. <laughs> I don't know anybody else who does what I do uh, other than my own business partner. Um, the, Not but, yet. <laughs> let, let, let's, um, I'm going to take it into real world. I, I get this phone call maybe two or three times a year. And it's a person who just retired from a career uh, doing accounting at a major corporation or they're a restaurateur or something else other than being in the art business. And they love art and they want that to be their career. And this is the worst version of it, by the way. They've made a lot of money. They're smart. They know how businesses run. Uh, and they figure this is just going to be transportable, right? You know, I understand how restaurants operate and I understand how to sell some things. And I've been buying art 
for uh, a long time. And the, the thing I tell them is, all right, the first thing I would do if you're really serious about this is that's great. You have a lot of money, put it in a bank where you can get your hands on it and go to work for somebody. It's going to be instead of the cost of what it would be to get a real education in a field of going and getting your $300,000 education at some university now, go for the cost of not making necessarily a living, or maybe you get lucky and you make a few bucks along the way. Go talk someone into letting you work in their gallery. It is its own specialty. You know, I've said this on my podcast a few times. I probably had to hear a piece of artwork or witness a piece of artwork being presented a few thousand times in front of me by skilled art dealers to really get a sense of what it is I should be doing. And that was my school. Now, I wasn't in the position that these people who call me up are. I had to really make a living, so, so I was there. But most people won't do this. Matter of fact, I've never met anybody that will do this. The next one is, if you want to open up an art gallery and you refuse to go through that process, hire someone who has and make them basically your business partner. And then they're going to be really your teacher. And you got to treat them like a co-owner in this process or they're not going to do it at their skill level that you want to bring into your own gallery to learn from. And they're going to infuse DNA into your operation that you won't even understand at first. There are things that they're going to do that are going to become part of your structure that you would, don't even know existed in the first place to have implemented into your business. So those, that's the business advice of this. But I'll tell you a quick story here that's a better example of it. because it, Love it's your funny. stories. Go to it's it. It's funny and it makes me sound smart. And <laughs> so I get a phone call from one of these type of people and uh, he's out in a small community that is basically a community you drive through on the way to a heavily touristed area. I'm going to leave that out just in case he might be listening. And in that community, he owns a lot of the local businesses. He owns the restaurant, he owns a hotel, and he owns a dress shop and a gift shop. And these things that tourists on their way to this other town stop in and hang out for a while. And uh, that's what he's made a living off of. And he wants to open up an art gallery. And he specifically wants to open it up with the artists that I represent. He likes that particular kind of style of artists that collectively we handle. And I told him these same things. I said, you know, this is a whole thing to learn. He goes, well, I don't want to do that. I got other jobs. I have other things to do. And I said, well, you probably shouldn't do this. And I also advised them. I said, other people who do my kind of job, their agents, they'll do what we call the load up. They know you're going to go out of business next year. So they're going to make you buy as much of the art as possible because that's their one shot. You're going to figure out in a few months you can't sell it, not because it's not good because you don't know what the hell you're doing. And then he tells me, I'm not just any idiot. I go to Las Vegas on a regular basis. This, by the way, is not the town he's outside of. And I've been going there for years, and I've bought 80, 90 pieces of artwork from 10, a dozen different galleries in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is a big part of the street-level gallery world, or at least has been. And I've learned a lot about how art is sold over this time of buying all this art. And I said, huh. I said, you know, I go to Las Vegas a lot too. I mostly go for business because I have galleries out there. I happen to also be kind of a nerdy fan of magic. I've seen David Copperfield a hundred times. So I'm going to be a magician. I've seen his magic tricks. I've seen the smoke and mirrors. And that's all he's seen as, you know, walking into art galleries. There is 
a whole world that's behind what you experience as a collector coming in and you have not been exposed to it, no matter how many times you go into an art gallery, you need to see it from the people who actually run the levers of how a gallery works. And I'm not saying it's deception by calling it smoke and mirrors. I'm just saying this is show business though. We present a very polished version of what goes on in reality in our industry. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last question. <laughs> I'm a little pained in still asking this question. I came up with this question when I started the podcast a long, like a year ago, and uh, it's. I'll still ask it anyways. My idea was is I was going to try and create this idea of a quantifiable outcome. So the idea is, is that uh, through all the conversations I have with all the different guests on the podcast, I get little tidbits of knowledge. I learned this, I learned that, I learned little things from every different guest. And theoretically, by the end of it, if I listen to all of the recommendations and input and experiences, that I should learn a little bit more about how the art world works. So what I tried to do was come up with a quantifiable outcome of, of how, I, like, so me, so as an artist myself, if I listen to everything that everybody says, my quantifiable outcome that I chose to try and get was I want to have one piece of my existing artwork on exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. So the question that I ask the guests is, what is a recommendation that I can do in my career to put me on the path to be able to achieve this quantifiable goal? It can be any, it can be LACMA, it can be any large institution. I chose MoMA just because I'm from Washington, D.C. and I went to New York a lot. If that was genuinely my goal, if I was you and I was in that position, I would start by deconstructing what has been done ahead of time uh, by everybody who also has achieved that goal. I know it's a little rudimentary uh, and not quite very interesting, but well, there's but something... Not, but well, I mean, because what you're touching on is is the idea of like basically I I as the person who wants to achieve this goal I have to put in the work and the research, and that's something a lot of people don't realize that artists we have to do that. So having people hear that from a professional like you sounds better than hearing it from me. So go ahead. Yeah, because we don't live in a world where you're going to get discovered. It just doesn't work that way. You, you might know a couple cases that people claim that there was a discovery. It's probably only partly true and it's anecdotal. And the reason why you know that story is because of how rare it is, not because of how common it is. So you can't approach it in those ways. You can't think of it as I'm just going to do my great work and put it out there and eventually I get seen for what it is. It, the, the advice I usually give most professionals, uh, you know, actually young people starting out in any field. So I always say, stop worrying about the task. And stop, start concerning yourself with who you're doing it with. And for your goal, it's that in spades. Those are very close societies that those people come up through. Uh, they are channels. Not all of them I'm, all even, I'm even aware of. It's not my part of the business. But I know how insulary that they actually are. And ultimately, there's a lot of politics in it. Not that you have to play it like a politician, but you have to be known to the people who make those type of choices. And it doesn't start at the top. There, there's a feeder along the way. You know, just like in the music industry, 
where small labels sometimes feed into bigger labels and people kind of well, climb it, up along the it's way. Like, it's like Yale used to always feed into certain galleries in New York kind of thing. So graduates of their master's program went on to have exhibitions at particular galleries after graduation kind of thing. That there are certain sort of avenues and streams that sort of go in certain directions. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. That is. I, I always say, you know, that's that's the value of Yale. It's not the education. It's that you're now part of the club and you get to go down, you know, those doors open for you. And you're going to walk into those companies with other Yale alumni uh, and people who figured out, you know, what white shoe law firms they wanted to go to work with also figured out which of the Ivy Leagues most of the lawyers in that law firm went to. And that becomes part of their decision making and getting to it. But I would correct that. I would challenge yourself on the goal, though, you know, Whatever that goal is, I feel you're, it's not wrong to go after it, but be careful that all those things that are needed to do along the way, they're also going to keep you from doing things that perhaps you're better suited for and might be much more exciting and special for you in your life experience. You're, you're cutting out serendipity in the process. And beyond that, it's going to be transparent. That's the hard balance that's hard hard to do too. You know, just because you're following the right round and hanging out with the right people, it, it's going to have to be the right art and it's the right art for the moment. You know, I mean... You well, know, and there'll, just, there'll be a lack of sincerity and, and authenticity to it because I'm, I'm basically using people to try and get to a particular goal. So it's not going to... People aren't going to... Nobody likes being used. And, and if I do actually try and do that kind of process... I'm basically going to be using people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, in the sense of that you become transparent yourself and that your actions, you have to be very, uh, very con, you have to be very conscious of that. Well, and this is why, like I, when I started the podcast, I thought this would be a really great idea to come up with this quantifiable result thing. And the, the more people I've talked to about it, the more people have basically turned around and said to me like, why should that why do you even care about that and i'm like i don't care about it it was the it was a it was an idea of to trying you know because a podcast is very nebulous it's very like oh here's some great knowledge and it like there's no actual results of a podcast so the idea was to try to make it so that if people were listening that they could hear something that could give them some quantifiable thing to try to uh do in their careers to to make a, a stepping stone that was the idea you know, I, I read your uh, your page explaining yourself oh. and your reasons oh, for the crap. podcast on your website, and I felt an immediate kinship between your podcast and mine, because when I started my podcast, it was with very similar thinking. Mm -hmm. Look, I at the time I started my podcast, I had been in the business for a quarter of a century, uh, and now it's more like 30 years, and... I love podcasts and I thought it'd be neat to have one, but that really wasn't the reason for it. It was because I realized after doing this for a quarter of a century, I couldn't fully explain my own industry. I knew a lot about parts of it and the parts that I experienced, but I became more and more aware that I knew my specific experience only and the people who are immediately around me, maybe those of their experience too. And I'm a little bit different than most art dealers. I'm, 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 
I've always been hyper curious about anything that I do and I'm kind of nerdy and I like to break things down and figure out what are the motives behind things and the mechanics and, you know, both in sociology and and where we fit in history and all those kind of things. Most people are not like that. It's not a criticism on that. We're just different kinds of people. But my industry was as devoid of that kind of thinking as as anybody else's industry out there. And I started to describe my show in its earliest stages to friends as the parable of the, you know, the three blind men describing the, the, the elephant, right? Mm-hmm. You know, feeling around and describing the different parts. And I realized that all of us, when we describe what the art business is, we're really just describing our own little aspect of it. So we're really not describing the industry. We're describing our business, which is not the same thing. And then I figured if I talked to enough people who did enough different parts of this. So when you listen to my podcast, The Art Dealer Show at artdealershow.com, <laughs> had to throw that in there. I, I intentionally do what you do, which is I have not just had other artist agents on, but I've had that. I've had my own direct competition come on the show who have different feelings about this. I've had all kinds of different sort of gallery owners from upstairs to the very, very bottom downstairs. I've had art publicists come on the show. I've had brokers. I've had art auctioneers. Because my hope is, is that over time, collectively, what I'm doing is, is I'm putting dots around something and those dots can be connected by lines and those lines will become the contour that describes a shape of something that's always been there, but none of us really ever can get our hands around. And I want to give it at least get closer to giving kind of some kind of shape. I love that you're doing it from a slightly different angle. I'm doing it because I want people who are in the business of selling art, which really is artists too, but honestly, we, we mean <laughs> we mean the people art who dealers. sit inside the... Yeah. yeah, exactly. Although I think half my audience are artists, quite frankly. <laughs> they, well, I want to know more about art dealers because they're the people... Like One thing that I learned very early on with this podcast was that Artists generally think of making art as a solo practice. They sit in the studio, they make art, and then they just basically put it out into the world and the world either accepts it or it doesn't. But really, it's it's more than that. And you even touched on it with your, your, your steamboat sort of uh, type of analogy, which is... Mm-hmm. Artists make sort of maybe like 10% of the process and then it goes to a, a curator and then it goes to a gallerist and then it goes to an institution and then it goes to a, a collector. So it, making art is just literally like the first step in a whole series of processes that a piece of art goes through. And it has to go through a whole series of people and different different situations and different experiences before it becomes sort of the grander thing of a piece of art. So it take, basically it's a, it takes a community to get a piece of art out into the world. It's not just a, an artist sitting in their studio making it. That's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I'll even throw on top of that fire. Understand that the idea, the reality that somebody has that a piece of artwork is something to be bought and to be collected and put into their own home, that's a construct. That's not necessarily a a human instinct, at least not at the level in which we do that. And know that the acceptance that certain kinds of art fit within those, uh, uh, that that, um, dynamic too, is also a construct. And that we're interdependent just in the same way we're interdependent of artists who came before us who taught us these processes that we use, figured out the paints and the pigments and the brushes and the techniques that, that, that we all build upon as visual artists. But that also goes for market. You know, if, if you are a pop artist, you don't exist without an Andy Warhol. 
all right, and, 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 and his compatriots. You know, he created not just the art and not just the thesis that defined it, but he also created an acceptance of it, not just in the academic world, but an idea that this is something to be bought. And that's part of your team as well. You are joining those people. It's, it's a big, big system. Yeah, and a lot of artists don't think of it like that. They a lot of artists are often like, "Oh, the galleries take fifty percent. They don't, you know, they're just in it for the money. They they're not in it for me." Kind of stupid perspective. But can we talk it, about it, that the, for a minute, though? Yeah, go ahead. Can we talk? <laughs> as as we're ninety minutes in, um, there's there's I a I have no time limit on my podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> there there's a podcast out there. I wish I could remember the name of it. It's two artists just talking about being artists. Uh, I, for some reason, just tapped in on the perfect episode. And it was, one of them kind of functioned like a reporter. They wanted to talk about this thing. This is going to be their next episode of, do artists take too much art? You know, is it an unfair dynamic? And one of them went out in the field, kind of like a reporter, and started interviewing art gallery owners, not on the podcast itself, but she came back and reported on them. And she said, I got to tell you, I was all prepared for this just to be an hour of us, you know, beating up on art gallery owners about how horrible they are and how much damage they do to us and how much they take away from us. I got to say, these people are kind of saints, you know, not oversell it or what her term was. She was, you know, and what she was referring to is art galleries take all the risk. And I know you've been told this as an artist before, or most artists have when they ask this question. But it's true. When you have a bad month as an artist, that's just a month where you're trying to figure out your rent and trying to figure out how to pay for your meals. When a gallery has a bad month, the ticker is going. I mean, they're paying for Manhattan, you know, to spend 50000 a month is a reality on a piece of real estate and not a very impressive one at that at times, right? They're paying base salary on staffs. And, you know, so their clock is constantly running you know, good months and bad months, whereas they're paying their staff, they're paying their rent, they're paying their utilities, they're paying all these things that you don't. And what they're doing is if your art is on their walls, it's showing good times or bad times. They take a risk. You know, we kind of touched upon it a little bit earlier. They're taking a risk with every artist that they bring in because they're making a choice of one artist over another artist. That's a very risky thing. It's hard for art galleries to make those kind of choices along the way, and they take them very seriously. But I always, even with my own artists, when they question us about it from time to time, I'll literally make them a pie graph. And I'll say, okay, gallery's taking 50%. You, we get half, they get half. Out of that 50%, yeah. there's probably an art dealer involved on the floor. It's not just the owner that's selling the artwork. They give them a 10% commission in most cases, which is 20% of 50%, not 10%. So that's 20% of their margin is going just to the art dealer alone, right on the floor. So now they're working now with 80% of their margin as a remainder. From that 80%, all the other bills have to get paid. And when you really start to look at it, most of the margins on art sales, and art sales in most galleries, these are five, 10% margins with the risk that it wasn't going to happen at all. I, I, I worked for a gallery in San Francisco and, and I worked for them on their last two years before they went out of business because they, 
just couldn't get the traffic and they couldn't get the artists because the the, the competition also is really big for getting artists like galleries finding good quality artists and maintaining them and then also building their careers and and you know making basically making it so that the galleries can make more money because the artists careers grow i mean it's a it's a huge uh, symbiotic relationship that goes on between the gallery and the artists and a lot of unprofessional artist I'll just say it you know don't understand that like it's a necessary part of the business like you a, 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 an art it's very 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 rare and difficult for an artist to be able to sell their own work and make a good living at that like the need for a gallerist or a, uh, a, a art advisor or whatever sort of intermediary between the artists and the collectors is a necessary part of this industry I would agree and and I think it goes. I hope it goes you for would by the name of your podcast. <laughs> but you know, it's not unique to our field, though. It's it's any field. I'll I'll give you an example of it. it's where we have an advantage where other industries are actually in a lot of trouble. Right now, if you want to be a successful writer, this is both the best time and the worst time collectively, right? Uh, it is the worst time because once upon a time, if you got into an independent bookstore and you wrote a book that was likable by the person who owned it, the person who owned that bookstore would recommend it to their customers. Okay, those bookstores are gone now. Same thing for records, too. So now you have Amazon. The great thing about Amazon is everybody can be in that bookstore. You don't even have to have a publisher. You can self-publish, be in the same bookstore that Clancy is in, right? But at the end of the day, if no one is there to bring you to your attention the small guy, who did something exceptional, everybody's gonna just keep on buying a Grisham novel. So it's really fantastic for Grisham because he's already very famous. So now he just gets to sell a lot more books with less friction in between and people you know, putting their money into his uh, bucket of money, you know, their hands into his bucket of money. For us as artists, we're still kind of, I, I refer to ourselves as us because I, I come from an art background too, but I mean just us collectively in the industry. I identify with the artist. I appreciate that. We still have, at least for now, art galleries or at least the fairs even with art gallery owners standing in them. We have an ecosystem that is still dependent upon advocates. And the reason why we have remained this and not, and we haven't been overtaken by, you know, Artsy and First Dibs and, you know, Artnet, uh, as just these easy Amazon type avenues and we still function and still make a living is because the collectors for this one type of consumer choice, they need to feel connected to it. They need somebody to make that relationship with it. And to your earlier point, it's easier for someone else than the artist to do it because we culturally have a need for humbleness. It's distasteful to say that your work is better than something else, that your work is going to be that much more important in time, uh, that you are an exceptional whatever it is. We, we take that as being egotistical. We take that as people as being awkward to deal with. And just for that simple reason alone, having representation is important. But it's on the finer level, getting back to the very beginning of you know, our conversation, it's a different skill set to be able to find a way to tell a story and to thread into that story everything. Everything that's important about that artist, everything that that artist is trying to communicate and find a way that that story resonates with an individual that we're saying it in front of. I love it. It's fabulous. 
Good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All right. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you very much. Hopefully I can have you back again sometime. I would love that. I would love that. (laughs) Maybe even on my show as well. I would love to. Thank you all for your support of the Wise Fool Patreon account. If you've not become part of our network, by becoming a supporter, you receive the opportunity to help in the choosing of upcoming guests, cities that I should visit, and also you can give me questions that you would like me to ask future guests. You can find us and support us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the podcast, I would appreciate a five-star rating and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of my many weaknesses that has become glaringly obvious to me through my insights from my guests is that my lack of professionalism in the business practices when it comes to my personal artwork. So I've become putting my work on sale on SachiArt.com. You can find my artwork available for purchase at SachiArt, S-A-A-T-C-H-I-A-R-T.com slash Matthew Doles, M-A-T-T. H-E-W-D-O-L-S. Thank you.